We continue in Luke, we're in chapter 15 today, and Luke 15 is, of course, a very, very famous chapter of Scripture. And one commentator says Luke 15 is one of the best known and best loved chapters in the whole Bible. And another even goes so far as to say in the realm of literature, there's nothing finer. And I think that resonates with us as we have engaged with that chapter. I know it's a chapter very dear to you today. And just the privilege we have as a people that we get to sit under such a section of scripture. The three parables of this chapter are just great stories. Stories children love to get their Bibles out and read even on their own. And what makes them so exceedingly great is that they surprise us about what God is like. They illustrate in a relatable and memorable and charming, moving way what scripture reveals about the heart of God. And what they display about God and therefore how we relate to him is radically different from what any other religion teaches, and it's imperative for us to mark that fundamental difference in because of who God is, how we in turn relate with him. One commentator, Jeldon Heiss, says it this way, in no other religion in the world, in the whole world, does one come to know God as the one who in his love seeks the lost person to save him through his grace. In the writings of other religions, we see how man seeks and yearns for God, but in the Bible, we see how God in Christ seeks man to save him for time and eternity because the Savior has paid with his precious blood for the redemption of man. Every soul has infinite value in God's sight, and the way to the throne of grace lies open to everyone who desires to enter. Beautiful, illustrated in our chapter we'll be studying. So let's read Luke chapter 15. We're going to cover the first two parables today, if one can exactly cover the two parables today. Luke 15, 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, what man of you Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents 
than over 99 persons, righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but this good word endures forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Spirit of the living God, for inspiring and breathing out these words and granting them in the way you uniquely filled the very Son of God as he did his ministry among us to reveal the heart of the Father. We pray that you would move in our midst and in the way your people need to understand and take to heart this passage that you would individually care for your people and impress your people with your truth today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So Jesus tells these three parables as the first two verses indicate to us. He tells these three parables in this chapter as his apologetic, his, his defense, his explanation, his reasoning uh, to the Pharisees and scribes in particular before their grumbling criticism of him. And they observed in him that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And so the Pharisees and scribes grumbled against him, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And it's an accusation, it's a complaint, and it's not one they made once, but over and over again, it's this nagging discontent and irritant about Jesus. It's stuck in their crawl, and it's driving them nuts to see this take place. They're questioning him because of who's drawing near to him. You can translate grumble, grumbling as were grumbling or kept on grumbling. And it was this reoccurring charge against Christ. And it's nothing new. You know, we saw in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus calls Levi the tax collector and he repents and believes on Christ and he immediately has a party and he invites the people he knows, which are other Pharisees and sinners, and they come to his party, and the Pharisees observe Jesus being there and his disciples being there, and they grumble against his disciples in that instance when they say, why do you, plural disciples of this guy, eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Really, they're critiquing their master, Christ. But by this time, all indirectness, courtesy is gone, and they're going straight after Jesus. And so tax collectors were viewed in that culture as as traitors, you know, as extortionists, as you know. They were employed by Rome to collect taxes on their own people, and they earned their money by collecting more than Rome required. So traitors and extortionists, and then sinners. It's a big group of people in the Pharisees' perspective, who were immoral, who were just outside the respectable lines. Maybe they had bad reputations or 
lifestyles or even occupations contrary to scripture or contrary to the rabbi's standards of people, obvious sinners to them. And and it's interesting that the rabbis classed shepherds in this group. Shepherds were often kind of seedy and uncouth and dishonest. And so that was one of the occupations that were sinners. Interesting that Jesus first speaks about shepherds. He, secondary meaning, he's subverting that understanding of them. So the conflict the Pharisees have with Jesus is, Jesus, how should you deal with such people? And and back of this, what's unsaid is, what is God like? And how does God deal with such people? And so the Pharisees believed you shouldn't associate with wicked people. Uh, Even to teach them God's law, you don't extend to them the means of grace. You don't go teach the law to them. The Pharisees actually, one rabbi taught that when the wicked perished, there was joy in heaven. When those who provoked God perished, there was joy in heaven. So wicked people were dangerous. They were they would make you ritually unclean, especially if you ate with them, and, and, they, and they could even corrupt you. Uh, you could get infected with their way of viewing things and doing things, so, so stay away from them like the plague. If you're a prophet, you stay away from them. Now, sure, God welcomes repentant sinners, but it's on them to turn their lives around, clean themselves up, and come back to God, and then God will receive them. Stay away. However, no, Jesus' practice was totally different than this with the tax collectors and sinners, completely different. You know, the bookends of Jesus' ministry, so his public ministry, 532 and 1910, are like bookends of his ministry, and it's really striking what Jesus says in the home of Levi in 532. He says, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And then in 1910, just as he's about to enter Jerusalem, he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Do you want to understand me? That's what I'm about. And then, you know, a couple of Sundays ago, we even saw the parable of the wedding feast where when those who should have come to the feast decided they had better things to do, the Master God sends the servant Jesus out to the highways and hedges to compel them to come in. Jesus' approach was to go after those who are least likely to be interested in him, apparently. His approach to them is, says a lot about God's approach. And that's why when Jesus concludes his hard teaching to the crowds on the cost of discipleship, which should have scared everybody, the cost of discipleship is intense, he concludes in verse 34 of chapter 14, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And it's interesting, who draws near to him after that? The tax collectors and sinners draw near to him after that. It's not because Jesus was soft on sin, it's because Jesus pursued a sinner that they drew near while those who should have drawn near, those who were heroes at keeping the law, the Pharisees drew away from him saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And saying this man is a slur, it's derogatory, it's contemptuous. This guy 
receives is a beautiful word. It means to take pleasure in or have goodwill towards. It's this open-hearted approachability, accessibility. Eats with them indicates, as we've said, you know, some man came eating and drinking. It's sharing his life, extending grace, extending God's welcome, loving kindness to them. They felt it, and so they drew near even after hard teaching. So to answer the Pharisees and scribes' condemnation of him for his way of treating tax collectors and sinners, Jesus tells these three parables, and we'll look at the first two today. And so Jesus tells these parables specifically to them, meaning to the Pharisees, though he also wants the crowds to hear as well. And just notice, too, that he uses a rhetorical question to frame the parables. He says, what man and what woman? And I see this as a, a really a tremendous pursuing grace to the Pharisees. He's looking at them and saying, what man or what woman? It's as if to say, all of you would do this. I know all of you would behave this way. Won't you see how you would behave and turn and change your misguided view of God and repent and come and follow me? It's a summons to them in his grace. They can grumble, Jesus warmly invites. So he first tells a story of a shepherd and this shepherd owns a flock of 100 sheep and this was a common, ordinary size like a middle-class flock. You could have upper-class and 300 would be more of a rich person's flock, but he has modest wealth. He's a middle-class guy. The shepherd loses one of his sheep. At the end of the day, when he gathers his flock together and he counts them one by one before he puts them in the fold for the night, he's alarmed, sh shocked, to realize that he's missing one. And he only counts 99 when he knows his flock is 100, because he knows his flock. And what does he do at the end of the day, after a long day of caring for his sheep and looking forward to going home, when he notices he's missing one? Does he cut his losses? Does he write off the 1%, the overage, the underage? Does he call it a day? Do you say, well, I, I've still got 99. I'm going home. And Jesus is saying, absolutely not. You would not do that. Rather, he leaves the 99 sheep in the open country and goes after the one that's lost. He goes after it, notice, until he finds it. He doesn't just content himself with a cursory effort. It's until he finds it. And Jesus is saying, Pharisees, that's what you would do. So to further paint the scene, the shepherd leaves 99 sheep in the open country. It's not the wasteland. It's not the wilderness. It's, it's grazing pasture land. It is assumed that he would leave them in a relatively safe, secure environment. What most likely happens is what's assumed there is that he'd ask another shepherd or a hired hand nearby to like, give a general eye to his flock too, to, to divide his attention for a while between his own flock and his. However, in doing that, the level of vigilance and care would necessarily be less. It would have to decrease. That man now is entrusted with more and so to go and search for the one would involve a degree of risk to the 99. 
But you see, it's worth it to him. He's willing to reduce his care to the 99 to show special attention for a time to this one who's lost. We might be there, and if we thought ourselves to be his counselors, we might say, are you sure that's prudent to do that? Is it prudent? But to the shepherd, there's no other thought. Of course you do that. His sheep is very valuable to him. And and it's valuable, not just, the sense is not just commercially valuable, an asset, but he knows his flock, he knows the sheep, he, he raised it, it's dear to him, he loves his little flock. He's emotionally engaged with his flock, it's dear, precious to him. And so he goes after it. He doesn't quit searching until he finds it. And the idea is that he's determined and committed to finding it no matter what. And so the story underscores the pains and the trouble and the sacrifice the shepherd will make to find this precious lost sheep. Even if he searches all night, even if it's exhausting, the labor, even if he must pass through forests and gorges and cliffs, no effort is too much. He's going to find the sheep. And when the shepherd finally does recover his sheep, find his sheep, it's just this picture of tenderness. He, he picks up the sheep. He places it over his shoulders such that the stomach of the sheep rests against the back of his neck. He holds its four feet with his two hands and he carries it all the way back to the fold. And notice he's not irritated. He's not, he's not complaining about it. He's, he's not bothered. It didn't ruin his night. He doesn't say, you stupid wandering sheep, look what you did. He as he carries it back, there's only one emotion going on in the shepherd. He's just rejoicing. He's delighted. He's so happy to have his little sheep back alive and unharmed, safe and sound. It's worth all the cost. And any memory of the cost dissipates in his mind and what fills his mind with just sheer gladness and joy to have his little sheep back safe and sound. And so he's so joyful that once he gets back to the fold, he calls together his friends and his neighbors. It's his fellow shepherds, and he has this guy party. Gets them all over and has a a feast with his fellow shepherds. Says, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Throws a feast, a celebration, for the relief, gladness, joy of recovering his little sheep. And then Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he applies the story. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so we think of all that Jesus is saying here on the the first sense, it's He's saying, it's because of who God is that I'm doing this, that my whole ministry is oriented this way. It's because of who God is. In this story, the 
Pharisees and scribes criticism him of his ministry and why he goes after the tax collectors and sinners? Well, it's because of who God is that I do that. The main reason Jesus wants us to know and wants us to know today, the point that turns any other idea about religion on its head is that Jesus operates this way because God is so full of love and grace that he goes after sinners. He takes the initiative with sinners. He, he's determined to seek and to find sinners. It's the heart of God. And it gives God immeasurable joy when he recovers even one lost sinner. God regards him or her is so very valuable, so very precious that he seeks and sacrifices and finds and recovers and rejoices. And it entails that marvelous truth that God is more than ready to exert every effort and make every sacrifice to rescue one sinner. He doesn't cut his losses and say it's not worth it. He'll count the cost and find that it is worth it. And Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem as he speaks to the crowd. And it sets it all in sharp relief. The question is, how worth it is it to God? And how far will he go to rescue? How much cost will he pay? And Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem where he already knows that his cross awaits him and he is more than willing to plunge down in the depths of the judgment of God to take your penalty of your sin upon himself in your place. The joy set before him, he goes to the cross because the one thing he doesn't have yet is you and you're that precious to him. It also speaks of us and what we are by nature and what he wants us to be by grace. It says something about God, it says something about us. And what does it say about us? Well, it means that those God rescues are those that know they need rescuing. They know they're wandering sheep, that they're lost sheep, needy sheep. The tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes are drawing away from Jesus. The question is why? On the outside, it looks like it would be the reverse. But what's going on in deep recesses of the heart of the Pharisees and the scribes is that they are, I, they are incensed. They're murderously angry. They're looking at these lawless, immoral people that are the problem of their society and saying, Jesus, those kinds don't deserve the grace you're showing them. They don't, they don't deserve it. And, and the issue is the Pharisees and the scribes are exactly right. They don't deserve it. But that's the whole definition of grace that they need to go a step further and say they don't deserve it and I don't either. I don't know anything 
about the heart of the God I say I worship. And my sin is deep, it's profound, it's, it's me I'm after. And they haven't yet seen it yet. And Jesus is urging them saying, you would act this way, see it and come to me. Don't think you're righteous and have no lack. You're needy and need me. And finally, if Jesus has changed us with this gospel, if this is God's heart imaged in Jesus's pursuit of lost people, then Jesus looks at us and says, I want this to be your heart, the heart of those who know me and then know the Father. It's challenging the Pharisees and the scribes saying, instead of being mad, you should reflect the same seeking love towards sinners and joy over their repentance. That would show that you, you know your need and you've received my gift. And he just looks at us today and he says the same thing. Do you have this drive, this desire for the lost and delight in their salvation? Well, next Jesus reinforces those truths by telling a story about a woman who loses one of her coins. And it's really nice as you go through Luke, you see he likes to pair a story about a man with a story about a woman. Like observe that one day. Also, he likes to pair, here we got a man of modest means and a woman who's poor. He likes putting those stories together. I think he likes just touching us all as a good doctor, diagnosing, caring. So Jesus says, what woman? What woman? Again, it's rhetorical. The answer is, every one of them would do this. Pharisees, come to me. A woman has 10 silver coins. Each of these coins is worth a day's wage. And so it seems it's her family nest egg. And so their family's nest egg is 10 days. That's the, that's the rope we have. Like we have 10 days if something goes wrong. It's a poor family, that's all. Well, she loses one of her coins, so what does she do? Does she console herself with the knowledge that she still has nine coins left, 90%? The family nest egg is still basically intact. No, and Jesus is saying you wouldn't either. You do just what she does, she goes searching. And so what do you do when you've lost something? I know you've lost something probably in the recent short term. Your phone, your wallet, your keys, which is a recurring thing in my experience. And I don't know about you, but I, I can't sit still until I, I have to find it. Like I, I'm so anxious and preoccupied, I can't even think straight until I find it. And the sense is, Jesus wants to say, that's what, there's a sense of that's God's emotional life before someone he's lost. And so poor people's houses at that time had no or they had very small windows. So to find her coin in this dark, dingy little house, the woman has to light a lamp and sweep the house, reaching the broom under every little piece of furniture, the bed, every nook and cranny, all the corners, and then she'd drag it back, hoping to sweep up the coin. It was a lot of work. She's, she's turning her house upside down to look for it. I mean, she is into it. And she sweeps and searches, again that phrase, until she finds it. And when she does, she's just, she's overjoyed, like this, 
this joy that she just can't contain. And she calls together all her friends and neighbors, and these are feminine nouns, and it's all her girl buddies. And they have this party, and she says, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. And she puts on a, a party, a celebratory feast, and just notice that she feverishly found the coin, but now she spends at least a portion of the coin on her party that she's so excited to throw. But such is joy. At that point, to have it, she wants to be generous with it, with all her friends. And then Jesus applies the parable. Looking at the Pharisees, he goes, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's joy before the thousands and thousands of ministering glorious spirits in heaven over one sinner who repents. Maybe if you had a particular football team that had a bunch of fans and won a big game and all the fans rushed the field, thousands of thousands of people in joy, ecstatic over this football victory, maybe you have a picture of thousands of thousands of angels delighting over one sinner, one who repents. So again, why does Jesus receive and eat meals with tax collectors and sinners? What does that tell us about God? Well, God, on the first place, is it bears repeating. He's full of love and grace and takes the initiative to seek and find lost people. And God feels such joy, immense delight. It makes him happy when he recovers just one because that lost one is that valuable and precious to him. And to think that that's the nature of God, not a cool, impassive, indifferent deity way up there in the universe, but one like this. And again, he's willing to take any effort and exert any expense to recover that lost sinner. Note the woman searches diligently or carefully, thoroughly, turning the house upside down, committed. She is bound and determined to find this coin, and it shows us God is bound and determined, committed to thoroughly, diligently work for the lost and to find him. Jesus on the road to Calvary is telling us he's willing to bear that penalty and exert all the costs necessary, and it will fade in his mindset with the joy of having lost sinners. And we need to know about ourselves and our relationship to God that we too need to know that we bring nothing to the table except our open, obvious need that we are lost sinners. All we bring is our need. That's all we've got. But we don't have anything else. We're needy, we're lost, we're wandering. We're... And as lost sinners, therefore, who God finds with his grace, we repent, we loose our hold on our old way in order to hold on to Jesus, or rather be held by Jesus, to be recovered by Jesus. 
And so the Pharisees and scribes, to know God, they need to know that they're not really righteous. That to be truly righteous would be to be found by Christ in their need, to be covered with his blood and covered with his righteousness. And then that faith would develop into a heart that somehow reflects God's love and grace towards sinners to where they would too share in the joy of the lady in recovering her coin. And he says the same to us as a diagnostic for us as individuals, families, and a church. Do we cherish in our hearts the sense that God in Christ loves seeking and finding one sheep, one in a hundred, one coin, one in ten, that that is what we were, that he found us, and that we'll be so amazed by his grace that we never deserved it either, but we received it, and now we want others to find such a savior that seeks and saves the lost. And there's no other religion like this. It's completely different. And so the questions that come at us from this text are, do you know Jesus that way? And do you know the Father that way? And if you're a believer this morning and that you've tasted something of this, that you knew your need and knew the Son came after you, and paid the price for you, and gave you his record of righteousness that you received by faith alone. If, you, if, you, if that expresses who you are today, do you hold that deeply and ever deeper, that you were lost and now you're found? Does that bring you great joy? No matter what your circumstances are, does that joy frame your life? And do we as a church reflect this heart for the lost and our commitment, our tenacity, our sacrifice, our thoroughness, would it be said of us? And what brings God joy, does that also bring us joy? Jesus just looks at us and says, you would do the same thing. Come to me and then reflect my heart to others.